Welcome to Behind the Warrior, a podcast presented by the EOD Warrior Foundation. This series will focus on resources, interviews, and topics impacting EOD warriors, their families, and the military community at large. Hi, Mike. How are you? I'm doing great, Sherry. How about yourself? I'm doing well. It's great to have you with me today hosting this podcast. Right. Well, today we have a very interesting subject here in Behind the Warrior podcast. Today, uh, we are going to be interviewing two subject matter experts. The topic of our discussion is brain blast injury prevention. And with us today, we have Colonel retired Mike Evans, United States Army. Mike uh, was retired after 30 years of active duty, 34 reserve time. He started out as an MP in the reserves. He went into infantry on active duty and finally uh, to EOD. He has held uh, many EOD officer positions to command uh, amongst some of the highlights, the 47th EOD at Fort Hood, Chief Deputy Director at the NATO Counter IED COE, and closed out his career as the Army Explosive Safety Rep at the Defense Explosive Safety Board. Also with us today, we have active duty Major Aaron Foist, United States Army, also has held EOD positions throughout his career. He is currently the EOD Division Officer at the CCDC Armament Center in Picatinny, Arsenal, New Jersey. Welcome, gentlemen. Thank you, Mike. Thank you. Thanks, Jerry. Good to have you here today. It's great to be here. It's an important topic. It certainly is. So to get us started, I will just say this to our listening audience, that our podcast will be a discussion that strongly impacts the EOD community. And our topic is brain blast injury prevention, as Mike said earlier. Both of our guests have done considerable work with this endeavor and with the goal to improve safety and reduce TBI in the EOD career field. Colonel Evans and Major Foist, welcome. And um, Colonel Evans, could you please comment on your um, early awareness or introduction to the blast brain injury uh, prevention relationship? Hey, thanks, Sherry. We're glad to be here. Um, probably like most uh, senior leaders, we I had zero awareness or understanding of what it, what it really was or, or any real implications of all the different military training I was doing. But uh, the first time I really thought about it was in 1997 in Kuwait when we, my EOD company, we were training with some special forces uh, guys. And one of the training tasks that they wanted to do was to, was to toss a 20-pound satchel charge over a small berm and I couldn't see the real training value in it, and I started reading, and uh, I learned that there's really no idea what that means in terms of its effect on you, and it really seemed at the time that they were just really doing it for the bell ringing effect uh, as a rite of passage. So I kind of washed that away until years later in 2005 and six when I was in Iraq in Baghdad, so it became much more uh, pressing to me at that time, obviously. Okay, thank you. Major Foist, um, I'd also love to have you comment on on your early awareness and introduction to this program as well. Well, um, mine wasn't as dramatic. Um, so prior to uh, deployment, um, and this was what, uh, 08, I guess, um, you take a, an automated neurological assessment test called the ANAM, and it's a pre-deployment and it was a readiness tool. And that's sort of a, the inklings of my under, understanding. And then um, 
on that deployment, I witnessed uh, a gentleman that worked for the brigade we supported um, take several um, close blasts, nothing uh, penetrating, um, but more than likely several TBIs and go from a very high-performing officer um, to sort of relegated to uh, the bench um, because of numerous... Um, what I would characterize as TBIs. And so that's when it became really clear and apparent to me that this is, uh, isn't something like a rite of passage that um, Colonel Evans had talked about, but it's serious business. Right. Well, thank you both for that. And the next question I have is for Colonel Evans, and this is actually uh, reflecting back during the war in Iraq, um, going all the way back to 2006. And did the military know then that blast pressures um, from IEDs and, and any other event were inducing brain injuries or concussions at the least? Or how, and how did the senior leadership respond back then? I think, I think there were echelons of knowledge. I mean, knowledge, knowing and understanding and being able to do something about it were all different answers. So, the tactical leaders and the medical community at the tactical level were dealing with so many just horrific uh, physical injuries that there were, you know, you know, traumatic amputations and penetrating head wounds. And so, uh, and as well as, so if you had a blast, a near miss, you got your bell rung, you got knocked down. In addition to our kind of inclination as an EOD community to just shake it off for good, uh, that was the answer from a lot of the medical community. Uh, then we started poking at it. You know, we had actually had a standard. Uh, we started, and I was started reading a little more and talking to people. We had a standard for how many times our MRAP could be blown up. We had a standard for how many times the jerb could be hit on what side. And we were tracking that because we were worried about uh, violating the integrity of the armor. But we had no standard for how many times an operator could be knocked down or, or feel a blast. And as as we poked into it, we learned that uh, the what was then called the MACE uh, standard wasn't being administered. And when our uh, we had directed everybody in the command to, if you see, we had no way of knowing, but if you felt the blast, physically felt the blast pressure, we directed them to go see the medics. And the medics sometimes they would treat them or assess them with the MACE tool, uh, military acute concussion. I forget what the E stands for, but. Uh, that tool was used in some places in some units, but the warrant officers and PAs and the, and the medical community really didn't want to do anything about it. And as I worked my way up the food chain, I found I got asked to leave a couple of medical meetings and we essentially was told that what we were advocating was, was going to bench uh, 20 to 30% of the force because the op tempo was so high. Uh, the amount of detonations and near misses and blast exposures were just off the scale in this densely urban terrain. And the unofficial answer back from the leadership was, we don't have enough force structure to do the jobs we have with everybody. So if we were to put 20 to 30% of the, of the force uh, in, you know, on the bench or time out for a period of time to, to recoup their uh, recover, uh, was just not a serious option. And our time, I think our experience and understanding of that so that situation has, has evolved upward and better over the years since then. I would agree. I would definitely agree. I can remember early on, well, actually past 2006, actually, where service members would have a blast injury and then take a 24-hour break 
And once they were reevaluated, then they were ready to go. And I, I understand some of the reasoning behind that, too. It's not necessarily that they may have been actually ready, but they were eager to to get back in the fight and, and be with their team, too. So um, there's that also. <laughs> right. I, I think uh, there's also a, a, a tendency in the UV community to compartmentalize our uh, our own internal issues so that we can continue to do the mission. And we had teammates who knew that if, if they went down and sat down or went home on leave or saw the medics, that there was a, a couple of battalions of infantry that would be operating without any OD team, without any support. So they just chose to, to stay on the field. Right. Uh, I agree with that. I, I've been hearing that since uh, 2009 when I was working with wounded, ill, and injured, returning back from Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, that seemed to be a common response and, and totally understandable. Uh, Colonel Evans, you shared with us an article, a uh, very important one, called Protecting Warfighters from Blast Injury, which was written by Lauren Fish and Paul Shar. And in it, they were discussing some of the key findings that they've collected uh, from the past decade or so about exposure to blasts from IEDs and also uh, training with heavy weapons and, and what that can do. Uh, to the brain. Can you talk a little bit about the article and what do you think um, some of the responses, what kind of actions were, were prompted on this important subject? Yeah, I, th- I think uh, it's a great article. Um, it's a great summary for many of the leaders in the Department of Defense, not just the military types. It was the, really the catalyst, their understanding, their, the awareness or no, what, a level of awareness to the impact of our weapons training. I mean, everybody knew or at least by this point, everybody understand, understood that hundreds of thousands of IED wounded soldiers and sailors were out there with MTB, you know, mild traumatic brain injury and, and traumatic brain injury. Uh, and all of our protective armor and PPE or personal protective equipment was oriented towards protecting us from blunt trauma, penetrating wounds. We had nothing on blast overpressure. Uh, we really don't understand blast overpressure still, even, even now, how it works inside the, the skull. Um, so that article highlighted the the impact of heavy weapons training, uh, what essentially what we're doing to ourselves, and that there is no standard still to this day on blast overpressure, blast overpressure mitigation. And you'll hear people talk about uh, yeah, there is a standard, and it's you know, but it's all based on hearing conservation, uh, which is obviously important, and they're related in many ways. But the impact on the brain is different than it is on the, on the hearing. Uh, so. One of the key points that the, that article brought out, at least uh, in my mind, and I think in others, is that uh, there are studies out there that we were not tracking that show that, you know, if you have three or four ex- exposures, even relatively low-level exposures in a day, in a 24-hour period, you're really increasing your chances of injury by 30 to 40%. And that uh, repetitive exposure, like what we're referring to as repetitive low-level blast, that repetitive exposure effectively reduces resistance. So if you have a, a lifetime or a career as an instructor, you've been hitting, you've been getting hit by uh, several low-level blasts every day for five days a week or three or four, day, three or four days a week. That really does lower your resistance. Uh, to, so that even a relatively moderate blast may have an outsized impact on these experienced uh, operators. So uh, one of the other things that uh, it brought out was the, the findings uh, were that, in addition to not having a blast over pressure standard, uh, that there's also models, very complicated computer-based models and you know, networks of models that indicate 
uh, helmet design. Simple things is, such as using a visor uh, can reduce blast over impact, blast over pressure impact on the brain by uh, by up to eighty uh, percent. These are, you know, fairly uh, benign and easy things to say, but changing the way that the Department of Defense uh, looks at PPE uh, has to be based on a standard. There has to be something behind that. Um, their article, Ms. Fish and uh, Paul's article, uh, had some great recommendations. Uh, I'd like to run through a couple of them real quick, and I think you'll you'll see those kind of permeate through most of the, the programs that the that we're still working. They obviously want to work on increasing our ability to protect service members over time with with real solid long duration longitudinal research and development studies and and redesign PPE or helmets and so on. Uh, they're also the article is also a great advocate for a a monitoring or blast surveillance program that. Uh, you know, it, for the EOD community, the radiation protection program is a good standard. So we would we would see a blast surveillance program modeled on the radiation protection program, where every operator has a sensor or a blast gauge, and it's periodically uh, downloaded into a database that is then moves the data over to a uh, repository that can be accessed by medical providers. Um, and EDES makes a good they'd make a great arg- argument for. Uh, accelerating the requirements process for blast gauges and then using them uh, in a very disciplined manner and training and operations and putting that information in our service records. So, I mean, the article was instrumental on on uh, really changing the way Congress and most of our senior leaders look at the uh, the blast overpressure problem and its medical impacts. Yes, and I, I agree with you on that. And uh, if, if I may, this is a, uh major voice and I would like to say that um, exactly what Colonel Evans hit on um, is what um, a group of us are working on today. Um, In fact, I got off um, what I was previously working on, which is a capability-based assessment for warfighter brain health, a DOD-mandated one, and we talked exactly uh, what Colonel Evans just brought up, right, the lack of a standard. Um, the lack of a surveillance program. And uh, we're trying to work through those things, and I will tell you that the, the operational side, that's the kind of representative representation I'm on, is pushing hard for a mill standard um, for brain health. And we're, we've also put forward a, a warrior brain health conservation program that mirrors exactly what Colonel Levin said, um, kind of your, your radiation surveillance program, however... Uh, a brain health program. So that article has probably influenced a lot of folks. And I think we're seeing some of the fruits of that article today. Thank you for uh, adding that as well. And uh, speaking of all the uh, recommendations and some of the highlights that were pulled out of that article, the National Defense Authorization Act, NDAA of 2018, required the Secretary of Defense to provide a report to Congress on the study of our military's exposure to blast exposure pressures. Uh, What did that directive do for the EOD community, what what both of you are speaking on right now? What did that directive do? What's happening today? How's that being uh, carried out? Thanks, Mike. I I can take that, at least the first half of it, and uh, Major Foyce might want to jump in on the the uh, CBA that is also coming from that as well, but the Congress is clearly listening. I mean, there's been three, to my knowledge, 2018 NDA was uh, developed the requirement from Congress to the Department of Defense to do a longitudinal study 
and define standards on uh, what is ex- you know, acceptable level exposure, which you'll hear me probably say maybe two or three times in this conversation, what is the number? Is it, is it four PSI? Is it, is it three PSI over, over cumulatively over three days? So we just don't know that number yet. And that's one of the deliverables of this, uh, of these 25 studies that are rolled up underneath the longitudinal study under the uh, authorization act or the NDAA for 2018, 2019 uh, Congress directed us to uh, conduct a review of blast overpressure and training primarily oriented on heavy weapons. 2020, they directed us to add a blast overpressure history to medical records and a collection of exposure data. Uh, and then, the, and it also made some changes to the 2018 requirements. So there's, so there's sustained interest uh, from Congress uh, sometimes, you know, repetitive, saying the same thing again and contradicting, contradicting themselves a little bit from what they said earlier. So, th- but that's that's all right. I'd much rather have that than the uh, the alternative. As far as the impact on the EUD community, it's not going to be uh, near term, and it's it's not going to be very little of it. It's very, you know, specifically to the joint EUD community. Downstream, uh, maybe in first quarter 2021, primarily the Army and Marine Corps. Uh, EOD forces that are associated with a phase two of, of the BLAST surveillance program pilot study. There's, there's, that study is going to be taking place at Camp Lejeune and I believe at Fort Bragg. Uh, those service members that are on those bases will be rolled up in that study, and we're going to take cohorts, large groups of soldiers and Marines, uh, and censor them up throughout their road to war training and through their gunnery and ensure that we can not just collect the data, which we've proven that we can collect the data on sensors and we can put it in the exposure database. There's also uh, force structure implications and who, who collects the gauges and what training is required from the medics to, to take the gauges and move from the gauge to the database. There's all kinds of uh, kind of dot mill PF, if you will, doctrine trainers and leadership training implications from this, but it's all really oriented on the larger service. Um, from the EUD perspective, each one of the services, with the exception of the Army, uh, has identified EOD as one of their high-risk populations. Um, we're not really sure how the Army missed that, but uh, at least the CID agents are considered high-risk. And um, Why the EOD guys wouldn't be rolled up in that's lost on me. Um, so I suspect that that'll get fixed in the years ahead. But downstream, we expect to have that blast overpressure surveillance program uh, I think that'll probably be the most uh, near and obvious uh, implication for the EOD force. Uh, Major Voice, do you want to comment on that? Yeah, uh, you know, I've sat in this um, CBA for three different sections. Today is the start of the solutions-based. And it's it's taken, by the time the report gets generated for Congress, it will be about, 14 months from the beginning of this CBA to the end. And um, talking to some of the policy folks today, they're looking at the solutions not coming out until 2024. So um, that is downstream quite a bit. Um, And and I will tell you that um, the policy and the operational folks, representatives at the CBA, are, are a little frustrated. Um, that was the kind of the number one thing I took away going through some of the solutions is we're frustrated at the um, really the the research um, the medical research portion and I think that frustration is 
your medical research folks, um, all MDs and doctors, right, they have a do-no-harm uh, ethos, whereas um, in the service, we want to say, we'll take a 70% solution now um, rather than a 100% solution when it's too late. So the first thing I kind of picked up was uh, a mounting sense of frustration with not just the operators, but also some of the policy folks up on the Hill. If I could, uh, this is uh, Colonel Evans again. I, I think, Aaron, that is uh, the, the most important and relevant part here is that the people I was working with in the longitudinal study, they're great professionals. They are some of the most brilliant uh, researchers, you know, that the Department of Defense and academia can put together. But they're, they're researchers. They're, they're scientists. And they are very, very reluctant to publish something it's not 100% rigorous, 100% peer-reviewed, and they the idea of calling what we're doing a longitudinal study makes a lot of them very uncomfortable because longitudinal studies in their mind are 10-year and longer evolutions. Uh, and we struggled as the operations coordinator and uh, myself and Captain Cota, the, the medical coordinator, we were constantly pressing to, to get something that was an interim review, uh, early findings. Because we would tell, tell them, I said, look, commander's not going to read a 700-page research paper. They, they trust you to be the expert scientists and the expert researchers, and they will take the information you give them and operationalize it and, and take what they can. It doesn't have to be a 10-year, 700-page study. Uh, so I think if, if I'm reading the tea leaves, there's a, a paper out there that should be coming that at the very least identifies this mythical term for PSI personnel exposure as being not the number. We know there's a number out there to be determined, but it's not for PSI. So for PSI is probably too high for an acceptable level of uh, personnel exposure, particularly in a repetitive basis. But you just, it's just hard to, to press the scientists to, to do that. Really having the 10 years to look at it. I mean, we, we had this exact conversation today, sir, with, you know, about 18 of us on, on a team, um, with three of us operational, the rest either policy or, or medical research or clinical. And four PSI was kicked around. Um, and that was kicked around by the policy folks who, um, probably mirroring some of the operational folks are just frustrated, um, with, we have, hundreds of studies and academia and the Department of Defense and other departments involved in this issue, and we can't come up with a number to say, hey, don't exceed this. Hey, commanders, if your guys' sensors show this, hey, weapon developers, don't, don't develop a shoulder-fired uh, weapon that exceeds this. Um, it, it was just nice to see the frustration, not just from the operators, but also at the policy folks and turning the screws a little bit to let's, let's get something done. I think that one of the routes that you, you may consider, and, and if I was still in the business, I would try to press for is, was that for the service centers, the service safety centers to be involved. Each one of the services has a rep on this working group and they are just a, a designated uh, attendee, you know, but if the service safety centers uh, were involved, I think the kind of the restrictions are a little bit lesser, a little bit looser on them in terms of what they can write. They could write something, loose guidance for the services, 
uh, things that could be consumed at the NCO level, not, not 700 paints research papers, but something that's simple that our, that our NCOs can roll into all the other things they have to worry about and make it part of their troop training procedure, particularly before a training evolution is going to require exposure, make it part of the program at, at the tactical level. We don't need to have, we need to do all that research, of course, but we don't have to wait. Yes, sir. That's right. It's a great idea. Well, thank you both for that answer. And I just have a, a couple of quick comments listening to both of you. Um, first of all, please don't give up. <laughs> it, um, you know, I, I would encourage you guys to continue to, to, you know, um, make the charge on this and, and get some policies in place. And, I totally understand that research takes time. It's just 19 years into this that we're still trying to figure some of these things out, which I think is frustration across the board. But I'm just encouraging you, you know, don't give up. For that, Colonel Evans, how much do you think that Congress is involved um, and understands the impact of the blast pressure exposures to our military and are they actively involved in trying to make things better for our military and EOD technicians? Well, I, I touched on it briefly before, but it, you know, the answer is an easy, clear, resounding yes. There, Congress is very involved. Uh, I, I pressed when I was uh, still working this business. I was pressing uh, for more regular updates to the congressional staffers so that the staff could tee up and prepare more useful and focused directives for their congressional leaders, you know, to, to turn into law essentially in terms of telling the department of defense what they need to do next. Uh, so we've had three or four years of, uh, repetitive every single year, a new, a new, uh, law in DAA coming out of Congress, telling the department of defense to fix this, fix that, add blast over pressure to the service members, medical records, fix the PPE, Relook heavy weapons training so that we aren't unnecessarily exposing our, our uh, NCOs to repetitive low-level blast. Uh, I, I think that the we, in, in some regards, we're pushing against an open door at the senior leader level. Like Aaron was alluding to a moment ago, even policy wonks in the Pentagon seriously want to fix this. And they're getting frustrated because we're not making progress at, at the right level and at the right speed. I think that we have a moment when it was just really unfortunate that the COVID thing hit when it did because we were beginning to get our feet up underneath us and make some progress. And I think we've lost maybe a year's worth of momentum. And, and I'd just like to add that, you know, I think we have good representation at the caucus, the, the EOD caucus. I think they they represent our small cohort very well. Um, and I think our senior leaders... Um, are carrying the water during their, uh, you know, the senior leader engagements and things like that. So, like Colonel Evans said, I think we are pushing against a, against, against an open door. Mm -hmm. um, and it is too bad for COVID. Um, we're trying to work through things now, um, but it is tough in, in a virtual environment. At least some of these things are over. Sure. Understood. And Major Foist, what, what can we do right now? to both improve in the mission and ready rate, mission ready rates and safeguard the long-term health of our EOD technicians. 
Um, I'll take the the back end of that first. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think you got to educate um, your folks, right? As, as a leader, you have to um, educate them that throwing that twenty pound satchel charge over the berm and laying on the berm um, and rocking yourself isn't probably the smartest thing to do. Um, you know, the the first part of that question: What can we do now? Um, I would say there is a mechanism in place. Um, it's ANAM testing. It's a, a neurological test, and it's it's generally a readiness test, and it's performed pre-deployment. That test, um, as a unit, can be uh, ordered up, and you can get any of your soldiers tested. And then um, I would try to influence my soldiers into getting that test and put into their medical record. Um, and, and there's a mechanism to do that. It's not that difficult, but they have to request it. And I will tell you, um, at, uh, at NAV school, um, the, the skipper there has mandated that all incoming soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines um, take the ANAM, and then he transitions that into their medical record. So that's part of their in-processing. Um, so every new EOD person we have will get a, a baseline ANAM test put in their medical record. Now it's sort of up to the current leaders to try to get our uh, mid and, and late-term career folks get some of their tests put into the medical record because that's the, that's the key, um, a baseline test that you can compare against. And when we haven't had one forever, um, but we are very close. And so if I could say anything to our current leaders, it's... Um, you know, try to influence your folks to get their ANAM tests transitioned into the medical record, so they so the docs have a comparison. I think that's uh, very true. I sat in on some uh, TBI working groups, monthly working groups uh, here locally, and when we had discussions about those who were undergoing TBI effects, uh, there there were no baselines, so they had to guess as to whether or not there was a degradement in cognitive ability. So. Uh, putting putting that information, getting the ANAMs done, putting them in the medical records is is absolutely needs to happen, and also encouraging those every time they feel they've been exposed to to get checked and get evaluated. What other recourse uh, do you think there is when the medical community says that our normally solid EOD troops are fine, but you're seeing their performance degrading? What what else can can be done? Um. Honestly, I think you have to talk to the, the medical folks, and you have to sort of lay it out for them. And, and we've done this in, in the CBA, the, the operation, you know, the operational side. And I'll take something Colonel Evans spoke about earlier: is the MACE tool. And, and I'm not sure, sir, what that stands for either. But I know it's a triage tool after you've been involved in a blast incident, um, where the the medic on the ground gives you and basically answers several questions. And what they're comparing it to is a bell curve. Right, and they're comparing it to like, hey, the, the right in the middle of that bell, bell curve. If you fall on the right side of that, you're good. Well, most of us that have been in the EOD field for a while understand that that we assess our EOD folks for brains, like good looks, all that great stuff. But we're generally on the far right of that bell curve. So what you have to do is explain to the medical people that, hey, look, I see what you're telling me, but you're comparing us against the 50 percentile. We were already above the 85th percentile when we came in. So compare us to that. 
um, it, it's an education. Um, the Joint EOD is trying to educate the CBA on coming up with a possibly a cohort-based NACE testing, you know, for SOCOM, EOD, some of your your different types of folks that that uh, takes into consideration that we start out on that right side of that bell curve and that, yep, you may tell us that we're within the average, but as a commander, I know that my soldier is uh, is not normal. And so I think it takes that leadership engagement with that medical community to say, look, I know my soldier, and you're telling me he's within the average. Well, that's not good enough because he came in way above average. Right. I, I think that's a, an absolutely great point. And if I could, Mike, um, I'd like to highlight the, I mean, Aaron's major voice is talking about his working with the medical community at the, at the upper level, which is absolutely critical because we need that, we need that long-term policy that the services can then write their own systems or how they want to do business. But we don't have to wait for that. Commanders at lower levels have surgical surgeons and medical communities and medical commands that they're, that they're partnered with, that, t- that care for their, their soldiers and sailors. So that education process from commander to commander where uh, Aaron's is discussing, I think is critical. And, and if you couple that, that level of engagement and explanation to the medical community, and I, I may be out of my lane here, but... I don't think there's anything that would preclude or, or prevent a commander from executing a policy at his level. Everybody gets an ANAM tested. It's a, a question of unit readiness. Everybody gets an ANAM. Everybody gets it put into your record. We're going to do it annually, and we're going to do it after every gunnery exercise or after every series of uh, training evolutions, pre-deployment or post-deployment. I mean, the commanders know enough about this. I mean, I know an EOD group commander who wrote his master's thesis on blast exposure. This this is not something that is new to our leaders. The question is whether or not we have the authority to put a policy in place to do some of the things that at a lower level that major forces are discussing making policy at the upper level. It's a computer-based test, um, kind of memory and reaction time and things like that. Now, look, I'm not going to tell you that it's the best test ever, but the ANAM has gone through several different iterations, and it's the best that we have now. It's and um, and it's accepted, and it's something that we can compare to, right? You set your standard, and then you take an ANAM after you've come back from a deployment again, and you can compare it if you have one in your medical record. And that's right. That's a step one. Just get everybody a baseline, and that's what we're working towards. Sure. Um, as technology and research gets better, um, you know, maybe the, another test comes along that, that is better. Maybe there's a blood biomarker test. Or there's all kinds of things that your uh, medical researchers will tell you that are viable. But right now, it's better than nothing. Right. Most of our operators and our, our soldiers have, have taken this test to memory, reflexes, timed event. Uh, unfortunately, if you, if you ask the community, many people took it before they deployed but I've never taken one after I came back. And uh, most of the soldiers that I talked to and leaders that I talked to before this podcast didn't take them post-deployment either. So really the value is questionable without a policy and a, a rigorous system putting it in place that so you pre and post-event, pre and post-deployment. 
Right. Absolutely. I mean, you have to you have to start with the baseline and then have some results post for sure. So I, I understand that. And um, um, my next question for you is, how is the higher chain of command, which you guys talked about a little bit, involved in addressing the needs and safety of the EOD community? And is the message getting through and embraced by EOD leaders, um, officers and NCOs in the field? Well, I, I can jump in on some of that. Um, in my last duty position, I was at um, Indian Head, and I sat on the MTAB, Material Technical Acceptance Board, with uh, three other majors from all the other services. And we were successful in, um, in uh, editing the policy agreement that the, the Joint EOD Program Board uh, adheres to and follows. And basically, we added in, in the policy agreement that NAV school will um, do a baseline test for all incoming students, um, that the MTAB will keep the pulse of the PPE um, material developers and uh, keep abreast of new research when it comes to brain health. And also, the MTAB will generate a health concerns briefing yearly to the program board, who will then, in turn, brief that up to OSD. So there are a few things, and they signed off on it, so they agreed to these these things um, at that level. I've been approached by 20th uh, to provide some input. Um, like Colonel Evans spoke to earlier, we have senior leaders that, um, that are very knowledgeable about BLAST and about brain injury and about TBI. So at, at the senior leader level, I think we're carrying the water. Um, it's breaking through that culture um, at your operational levels of the machismo and to rub some dirt on it and get back in the game or not to be taken out of the fight that we have to try and, and uh, mitigate that a little bit. I, I've seen changes from when I was a commander to now and folks taking their brain health much more seriously. Um, and I hope that continues because I think that's a good indicator of that change in culture that, that we're looking for. Thank you for that. This is uh, Colonel Evans again. I don't, I, I can't speak for the field, although Sherry, if you could find a way to get me out of retirement back onto an EOD demo range, I'd, <laughs> I'd do that pretty quickly. Yeah. But so I think one of the things that we, we need to do is, is in addition to working the, the programs is we need to understand that there really isn't much of a joint EOD pr program. We say joint EOD. I mean, the services are going to do what the services are going to do. The Navy does what the Navy wants to do and the Army does what the Army wants to do and, and so on. So we, then that, we've got to recognize that as much as I like the intab and, and the detective process, we just have to understand also that the Army doesn't take um, – marching orders from many joint service body on EOD. They take the orders from headquarters of Department of Army Directives, which gets its directed its information from DOD manuals and DOD uh, instructions. So until those policies at the upper levels are in place, the services are like much like Aaron was saying, with the good intentions and best interests and hard work of a lot of senior leaders, uh, joint service senior leaders who are just out there slugging trying to do the right thing. There's no program. There's no policy. There's no, there's no doctrine. There's no changes in how we do things. So when she, as soon as the 
this leader A takes his hand off the wheel, the next crisis du jour comes up, and we're working on something else that's, uh, that's going to overtake our, our interests. Uh, Colonel Evans and Major Foist, I really appreciate both of you on today. You've given the listeners of this podcast a lot of great information about what is going on, what is happening. You gave us a great history, a uh, collection of data, what that data is being used for. And so to kind of pull it all together, um, all these discussed changes that we've talked about, the baselines, updated, documented ev- events in your medical records, uh, wearing of blast gauges, uh, enhancing safety through training equipment and improvements. I have two parts to this. One is, I think some of these are happening now, but do you both think that these are happening now and will they happen uh, soon? And how confident are you that these changes that you've been discussing today will significantly reduce traumatic brain injury and improve the health and readiness of our EOD troops? Karen, you're still in the business. You want to uh, take, take a shot at it first? Sure. Yes, sir. Um, I don't know about significantly reduce it. Um, I do think it will improve our health and readiness. Um, and you ask about a year. I think earlier I talked about 2024. I think the blast gauges will come online earlier than that. Um, I think the enterprise solution behind those blast gauges Basically, the the software behind once a blast incident occurs and how we zip it to the leader and then it goes into the medical record, that's taken some work and that'll probably be done prior to 2024. Um, But with all of that said, I think really this is sort of, these things are educating the, the field, right? The blast gauge doesn't prevent TBI. It tells you when you've sustained a blast and it will probably prevent you from sustaining another one um, too soon. So in that manner, sure, it could prevent a repetitive concussive event or repetitive traumatic brain injury, yes. I think what these things are going to do are they they will make us smarter and they will increase the readiness um, levels. Um, Unfortunately, we can't snap our fingers and it happens right now. Um, and that's the frustrating part of it. You know, I, like I heard from one of the policy folks today, 2024 is when they're looking at a lot of this stuff coming out. You know, that's, that's, a, that's quite a way off um, as far as I'm concerned. Would love to see something sooner. And um, I'm sort of surprised that we haven't come up with things sooner, to be quite honest. I, I think... Um I think the biggest point you hit there, Aaron, I'd like to, I'd like to double down on is the education, the culture change. Uh, when we get to the E6 level, uh, and they, and it's a regular part of their daily battle rhythm and they understand it, uh, which they clearly understand now, but it becomes something that they deal with on a day to day basis. We'll, we can affect change as we, as the, as those guys work their way through the ranks. I mean, we're going to mitigate the risk down to the lowest possible level, but like major force was getting at, this is an extremely risky profession. There's only so much you can do, uh, but as we wait for the science, and this is, you know, I got more science than my limited intellect can manage uh, in the time that I was working with this. There's a lot of crazy, very, very complex uh, research projects underway, 25 research projects underway, many of them interrelated. It's it's very complex to get the number. What is the number? What is, 
what is it? Is it four? Is it 12 over 10 days? Whatever. We don't know. We don't know that. But in the interim, we can approach it what we like similar to we do radiation, uh, Alara, as low as reasonably achievable. If, if you can get six feet off that breach, maybe you can get 10. If you can be uh, 20 feet away, why not 40 feet away? I mean, these are, these are things that we put in the hands of our NCOs and the low-level leaders. Yeah, they can do that. But we just have to use that type of approach and methodology while we wait for the science and some of the material fielding and policy things that parents working on to, to hit the down, downstream, hit the services. Of the findings that are sent to them, and I realize it's going to be 2023, 2024, wouldn't the results that are sent to them, the recommendations, wouldn't that then be directed down through the SECDEF and then the services, all of them would have to uh, put it together unilaterally? I'm hoping a lot, some of these things, like we're advocating a mill standard. You know, a lot of the stuff that Colonel Evans was talking about, the, the measurables, the quantifiables. Um, and the mill standards, you know, that's department, that's DOD-wide. Mm-hmm. So we'd like to start with the mill standard as maybe a linchpin for your measurables and then um, move into the kind of the work letter brain health conservation program, much like Colonel Evans described with the radiation surveillance program, with sort of the, the steps that, uh, that all the operational folks that I know or, you know, the talking points that we're trying to push during the CBA, um, I'm very positive that uh, those talking points are going to be acted upon, at least in the CBA and how it's briefed to Congress. What happens after that, I don't know. Um, I don't even know if we'll be a part of it at that point, but getting our thoughts across and with, you know, six or seven of us sprinkled out through the different teams of the CBA, singing from the same sheet of music, I think it's pretty powerful. I have a very strange question and just something keeps popping in my mind, but, uh, and I've listened to everything that you've said and, and I know that you're right. Um, but I saw some, you know, different groups come together, different services. So we had SOCOM, we had the VA, we had the air force, we had the Navy and the army at the Navy EOD schoolhouse. When we first started talking about this or one of the working groups on brain injury. And when we broke uh, after that meeting, I, I think you'd mentioned it earlier in the podcast that they said, well, we're going to start doing ANAMs for all the EOD students. Would that be a place to actually start instituting some directives that um, are done in training and then sort of spread out into the uh, four services going forward? I, th- I think that's exactly what, what they're doing. Captain Mariano, Mariano Dean and, and, the, and the people that put that, put that was put together on a shoestring. I mean, Eglin is, Eglin is funding the booths uh, for the testing. And there's a, I mean, there's no, to my knowledge, unless NECC or somebody has put up a lot of money somewhere that, that most of that is done without, that's on the best wishes or best intentions of a, of a one star somewhere. But it's not during, we, you know, it'll, as soon as there's a budget crunch, somebody who's not got a vested interest in this is going to take that money away and it'll end. That's true. Well, sir, that that was why we put that in the policy agreement. So now right. it is enduring. Is there and there we hopefully there'll be funding associated with it too. Yes, sir. But the the policy agreement was the the vehicle 
that prevented um, kind of an MOA or MOU, or we just don't want to do this any longer. That that program board, um, you know, signed off by all the GOFOs um, is what uh, Captain Mariano can hang his hat on right. um, and say, look, I, I need funding for this. You can't cut my medical personnel because we do this. And it's, um, it's agreed upon by all the services. Right. And, and, and that same position works well, like you were saying about within the CBA and at the DOD comprehensive brain health program, because you're showing something that's in place now, but you're needing, needing, get it, needing to get it codified in the DOD policy. Yeah. And that, that was a, man, we had a long discussion um, about sort of your, just what we're talking about, right? The funding, um, single service versus departmental and, and, and basically everybody's on board that it's got to be a, uh, it's got to be a DOD vehicle. It can't be single services because we just go our own different directions. So th- that at least was agreed upon. And it's kind of a, yeah, no, no crap. It needs to be a DOD uh, funding. But so some of the policy folks were discussing how um, we do that, what, what there is for precedent. Um, things w- well above my level, I just was... Um, just sat and listened, but uh, so that is one of the th- the takeaways, at least from today's discussion, was it's got to be at a much higher level where that funding comes in. Right. Hey, uh, one of the things, if I could change this up briefly, and um, Sherry and Mike and Aaron too, I don't know if this has been a subject of one of your other podcasts, but it and it may be too soon after a TBI-oriented topic, but at some point we need to probably as a community, a joint service community, said with a smile, a joint service community, look at the relationship between uh, blast exposure, repetitive low-level blast exposure, uh, TBI, PTSD, uh, hearing severe hearing loss and damage, the social isolation that often follows that, excessive, exactly, you know where I'm going, ex- excessive psychotropic drugs layering on top of this, sometimes as a result of poor diagnosis and then which is i mean because what is the relation to all those things to the suicide rate is it is it sequential blast event causes tbi and hearing loss and hearing damage and then and then ptsd and then social isolation and then potentially suicide or are they all concurrent is the same blast event causing other things and, and where can we interdict that chain if it's sequential I, sir, I, I think we've read kind of the same studies, right? After three TBIs, your chances of um, getting PTSD increase 40%. Um, once you have PTSD, your chances of um, committing suicide also increase a percentage that I can't remember. So I've seen it linked um, in some studies. I'm assuming you've seen that linkage as well. I just I, I have. And I guess what I'm getting at is a means of a public information campaign. I don't know if that level. Uh, that's something else we didn't talk about. I'm sort of interrupting myself. We didn't talk about the brain repository as well, as a means of uh, um, the guys you know, helping. But I just don't know if that th- those studies and that uh, sequence that we're that we're discussing is well understood at the tactical level at the the O three E eight level. Um, yeah, probably not. Probably, you know, I didn't understand it until two years ago. 
Yeah, it, it's a hard one. Um, I believe that everything you said. Uh, it, it's a combination of things, and it has been said that TBI can cause PTSD. Um, PTSD can even cause organic changes in the brain. Um, there are, and then when you combine drugs and then you start doing the bad behaviors such as alcohol yes. and anger and everything else and you're not getting help and then your wellness suffers and then it, it becomes a, a, a negative doubling effect to where it starts getting worse and worse and worse and you try to make it better or block it out by drinking more and more, sleeping less, not taking care of yourself. So um, these things are, they're kind of like for the non-medical um, they're apparent. They're, I think it's very aware. So, and for the medical community, they, they're like, well, which one, which one are we tackling first? And then of course, from my perspective as a former non-medical case manager and then working here at the foundation, um, it all starts with the person who's affected and that person has got to want to start to get better and and start to work on themselves. And so for us to answer your question, um, nothing like what you're describing as far as having that or having a medical, I, I don't know a medical person would come on and talk about that, but we have interviewed uh, mental health providers here locally. One is an Air Force veteran married to an EOD tech who has her own mental health and wellness institute. And we interviewed her, had her on for two parts the first one was talking about PTSD and therapies. Um, the second was talking about wellness. And Sherry and I are huge, huge advocates of wellness because we've seen post-traumatic growth that Ken Falk speaks of through his program Path at Bouldercrest. So we're huge advocates. We've gone through the programs. We've been present at the programs. We have seen life-changing events for EOD techs that were dealing with uh, organic injury and also mental health. So, um, yeah, it, the TBI, PTSD are huge contributors to downward spiral overall health and well-being. But uh, at the same time, I think there are definitely things that, that you can do to mitigate those effects, uh, to have better quality of life. And so, yeah, we're, we're highlighting that as much as possible and, and getting that information out okay. there. Mm -hmm. To include, excellent. Yep, to include working with uh, the families. You know, the families are—they're the bedrock. You know, they're the—they're the heart and soul. Uh, how many of these guys and gals have been getting divorced because they—they they, they couldn't get along, or they—they they didn't know how to take care of each other, or they didn't know how to let someone take care of each other? So all of that is interrelated, and and we are definitely uh, looking at that. Um, that's that's really why this podcast came about is to highlight those areas of struggle, those those areas of interest, and to get that information out there to not just the EOD community, but a wider audience, if if they so want to listen. Well, I, I kind of figured that may have been it, and I just wanted to, to ask if it was uh, like one of those topics, and clearly it is, that you'll, you'll circle back to periodically. And I'm really glad to hear you say families in there too, because there are many cases. And my observation has been is that this, the, the individual soldier is uh, so unaware, so self unaware, <laughs> unaware mm -hmm. uh, that they don't realize what they're doing and how they're behaving and where they're at. But their families know. Mm -hmm. their, their families see the de degradation, and so we got to help. You know, educate everybody. 
clearly you're right. I think that the individual the individual has to make that decision, but spouses are a key part of that. They can help them get there. Yes, we we are both huge advocates of including the entire family, Colonel Evans, when it comes to any sort of you know recommendations or resources that we make. But also, it it will be a subject that we circle back to because it's something that is just a, is continual. What we've also found is that communication and education um, amongst the spouses just to better understand traumatic brain injury and some other after effects of war um, that their warrior is going through is also incredibly helpful. We appreciate your sustain, Sherry. Obviously, we've known each other for a while, but I, I think I your name and and this program have been a kind of a, a, a steady point threading through a lot of excellent programs and excellent ideas and work across the, the community. And I'll say joint service community without smiling the sun because it's absolutely been the case. I appreciate the work that you guys are continuing to do. You have insight based on where you are and your access. You have insight that I could never hope to to, to mirror. So I wouldn't want to because I don't have the I don't have the emotional strength to carry all that baggage. So I appreciate what you guys are doing. Well, we thank you for that, um, Colonel Evans, and um, it's been an honor to to be in this position to help the families. And I know everyone on our on our team would say the same thing. Well, again, I thank both of you for being on today and bringing, bringing up this discussion, uh, letting us know what's going on, uh, what's happening, what the future looks like. And uh, I'm still very hopeful that these things are going to happen. And I agree that COVID has put a kibosh on many things uh, around the world for everybody to, to include uh, addressing this very important topic. But uh, we're going to go ahead and switch gears a little bit, and Sherry's going to take it away. <laughs> Yes, I am. So we we had a great conversation um, with you guys, and I always like to end our podcasts with something a little bit more lighthearted. So I'm going to ask just a few questions of each of you. And Colonel Evans, I'll start with you first and go down a couple of questions, and then I'll go to Major Foist. So here we go. <laughs> this is to include some of your favorites. And I would love to know what activity you do for enjoyment, Colonel Evans. Well, it used to be running, but I'm too broke. Uh, so <laughs> now it's uh, walking, walking, uh, or reading. Uh, that's, that's about it. Okay. And do you have a favorite book that you love to read, or a, a, you know, an author, or anything? No, like just that? current stuff. Mm-hmm. You, you'd think that I'd be able to get away from. I'm, I'm kind of a political. Uh, geostrategic nonsense, current events reader. Not, nothing, uh, no real genre as far as reading. Okay, gotcha. Gotcha. Well, there's a lot to read these days, that's for sure. <laughs> um, that's right. <laughs> how about a favorite vacation spot? We like the mountains. Uh, I love Austria. When, when we were mm-hmm. stationed overseas, um, Austria, Switzerland, any, anything above or, or, or near the tree line is uh, is probably preferred with me. That sounds beautiful. I would say the uh, mountains above Baker City, Oregon, uh, reminded me of Switzerland. So if you ever get a chance, go check it out. <laughs> I'm not sure if it's the mountains or the uh, 
or the beer drinking uh, at lunch <laughs> culture. But I, I like it all. Yeah, exactly. Day drinking is totally approved there. That's for sure. Um, so with that, uh, my last question is, as far as spirits are concerned, are you a beer guy or a wine guy? Uh, beer. Beer is my, my daily, uh, my daily go-to dark beers, IPAs, mm-hmm. um, bourbon on now and then, but mostly beer. Okay, cool. Well, Major Foist, I'm on to you now. So can you tell us, um, if you have a favorite movie or genre of movies? Uh, strangely enough, I like sci-fi movies. Um, and I like Westerns as well. Okay. Um, I don't really have a favorite, but I like that genre. Yeah. Do you have a, a favorite Western hero, if you could choose one? Uh, I didn't quite hear what you said there. I think maybe you said Western hero. I did, yes. Sorry. Um, I, I really uh, grew up on watching a lot of John Wayne with uh, my dad and grandfather. Mm-hmm. Uh, I like I like him, Clint Eastwood, right? You're basically your probably 60s through 90s westerns is what I would hang my hat on. Oh, yeah. Can't go wrong with those. No, you can't. They're good. They're good. Um, definitely classics for sure. Major Foyce, what is your favorite uh, sport? Favorite sport? Oh, football. Okay. Football um, played for seventeen years, so really love the sport. Favorite team was the Kansas City Chiefs. Um, was a fan since '88. Uh, that is great. Yeah, and the Chiefs won the Super Bowl last year, so uh, you you have hit the uh, ultimate uh, I, wish list? Yeah, I thought I was going to die before they would uh, um, get to another Super Bowl, and I was very happy. Yeah, try being a Cleveland Browns fan. <laughs> <laughs> I think I am going to die for the okay, they, they're, they're okay this year, right? Yeah, they are. I don't have to go fishing they're as much. Doing much better. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, and Major Foist, if you can hear me... Um, what is your favorite spirit? Are you a beer, wine, or whiskey drinker? We did bourbon. Okay, cool. We did bourbon, a little sweeter. Uh-huh. That's my favorite. Okay. Sounds good. Nice. Very nice. Well, that um, this concludes our interview with uh, you both. And as Mike stated earlier, um, we sincerely appreciate your time and the um, information that you've shared and we're ready to get this podcast out to the community. And I think people are going to really grab onto it and, um, with some hope. And, you know, we appreciate all of the work that you continue to do, um, in, in an effort to get to some policies and procedures that can really help our EOD technicians and military at large as far as reducing the severity and the impact of traumatic brain injury. So we thank you so, so much for your time. I'm happy to be here. You're welcome. Hopefully, hopefully we can uh, listen to this and it uh, comes across positive. Absolutely. Thank you both. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thank you for listening to our Behind the Warrior podcast. This series is provided to you by the EOD Warrior Foundation. To learn more, please visit us on Facebook or at eodwarriorfoundation.org. 
And don't forget to tell a friend. 